everyone. Welcome to The Catalyst, a platform I created to engage with changemakers who are catalyzing impactful moments within their careers, communities, and countries. And as such, I'm incredibly excited to have the opportunity to speak with Dr. Joya McCurchy, who is the Chief Medical Officer at Partners in Health, as well as Associate Professor at Harvard Medical School and at the Brigham and Women's Hospital. Welcome to The Catalyst, Dr. Joya. I'm so happy. Thanks for having me, Audrey. Of course. As I said, I'm so grateful to have you on the Catalyst. All my previous guests have been exceptional in their own right, and you're no different. Not only are you a physician and a professor, but you're also an author and a human rights activist. So you're truly incredible and inspiring. And the impetus, of course, the impetus for this episode actually was a guest lecture you gave in my course, Infectious Diseases and Social Injustice. In that lecture, you spoke about global health, your experience within that space as a physician and the global inequities you witness. And before we move to discuss that, I would love to know how you found yourself in that space. How does one become a chief medical officer of an international charity like Partners in Health? And how does one become a human rights activist? I guess my question essentially is, what has been your journey up to now? Yeah. Well, I think um, your generation is far ahead of mine. Um, and, but, you know, there were such obvious signs of deep injustice from the time I was a kid. Um, my father is, was an immigrant from India, from Calcutta, and I went to visit my, my mother is from Chicago, is European American. Um, and I think going to Calcutta as a child really made me realize there was something terribly, terribly wrong with the structures of the world that people would live in such dire poverty when my family, you know, um, had you know wealth and um, my own blood, my uncles and aunts and cousins didn't have any kind of advantages that I did. And I think it made me from a young age kind of a seeker. And the the once you open your eyes to injustice, the writing is everywhere. It's not that you see it, you know, once you open your eyes. And, you know, I grew up and, you know, the civil rights movement was going on. Dr. King and Bobby Kennedy um, and Malcolm X were all killed in, you know, my school age uh, years. Um, the freedom riders uh, apartheid was uh, you know still the norm in south africa nelson mandela was in prison and me i connected all those things i connected those things and i started really reading a lot even as a you know middle school and high school student and then and it seemed that health was part of this injustice it was a symptom you know I saw a lot of sickness within my dad's family in India, but also at the time in Calcutta in the 70s, when you know there were floods of refugees coming from what was East Pakistan, then Bangladesh. And so health seemed like one avenue. I was also interested in human rights law, um, you know, inspired by people like Thurgood Marshall, um, and, uh, you know, as well as, you know, other, uh, other things, sociology, uh, and music. I'm also a singer. And I was also inspired by a lot of the, you know, revolutionary mu musicians around the world from Victor Hara, you know, to um, people like Bob Dylan and Joan Baez. So, 
So I think I was looking for places to attach on. And then when I went to college, the year I started college was 1981. And that was the first reports of HIV. Uh, we didn't call it HIV at the time. It seemed like a huge mystery. And in my mind, quickly, it became something that was going to define the haves and haves, have nots, even before there was effective therapy. So I you know, decided to go to medical school. Um, I got involved in a lot of AIDS action in people who were fighting for the acceleration of treatment, um, fighting against stigma, mostly of um, you know, gay, uh, gay men, uh, but rapidly it became a disease that was tracking along the fault lines of things like apartheid, right? Uh, you know, the, the South African blacks who were forced into settlements and forced into the mining economy and couldn't bring their families were also victims of this terrible disease. Um, children, who were orphans were also victims of this terrible disease. So, so it just seemed like a good thermometer for injustice. And I became involved. I, you know, went to Africa as a as a medical student, as a resident. Um, and then in the mid-90s, we suddenly had treatment. And what I recognized is that the world had zero intention of treating people with AIDS in the global south. Zero. Um, the public health approach was very impoverished and very focused on what is sustainable on the current resources of the country. And I understood from my many years of reading and seeking and trying to understand that the resources available to the country are artificially constructed. You know, I think you're from Ghana. Is that right, Audrey? I'm from Cameroon. I'm originally from Cameroon. Cameroon. Okay. But, you know, in that area of Africa, I often use Ghana as an example um, you know, the, the giant, enormous wealth that is under the ground in Africa that is controlled by colonial powers and now transnational corporations that doesn't ever impact positively, um, the, you know, the, the people, uh, who are doing the labor. And so I think joining with HIV activists who had gotten treatment in the U.S., um, and HIV activists in the global South and South Africa, Uganda, Thailand, India, um, the, the movement for AIDS treatment access was very successful. And I had joined Partners in Health in 1999 because it was the only organization in the world that was willing to treat people living with HIV in Haiti at this time in Haiti with antiretroviral therapy. And it just seemed like so absurd that 95% of the epidemic was in the global South. And so this fight really led to the creation of what I think is a much more progressive discipline uh, of what we consider global health delivery, different than public health. Public health is important. It's important to do prevention. But at the end of the day, people need medical care. They need cancer care. They need orthopedic care. They need treatment for HIV, treatment for schizophrenia. And so now, and again, I think thanks to very progressive young people uh, around the world, you know, uh, Ugandan medical students and uh, nursing students in Liberia, there is, a, you know, and of course, people in the United States, um, there is the sense that we should do better, that we should provide care. And 
Um, so Partners in Health has really grown from a very small sort of provision of care in a charity clinic to now supporting the public provision of care in um, 11 countries, uh, including the Navajo Nation as a, as a country. Um, and with the idea that the right to health demands healthcare, not just prevention. And the right to health demands the support of the impoverished public sector, that the public sector has become impoverished from these structural forces, and that the right to health then also demands the engagement and participation of society. And when you ask people in any village anywhere what they need, uh, they'll tell you pretty much the same five things, food, a job, healthcare, education for my kids and a roof over my head. You know, these are basic things that in this global world we should be able to do. So, um, so yeah, I mean, I started really as an activist um, going to Africa because I thought I could lend my skills to this terrible epidemic and realizing that all of the medical skills I had were not useful because no one had really believed that care was possible. So trying to build a movement for the delivery of care as a basic human right. And so, you know, I sometimes joke that I became medical director of Partners in Health by default because we were so small. Um, but now I've had the experience of, you know, helping to support and build a huge global team and mostly local people. We have 17,000 employees at PIH and only about 100 are American. So it's all local people, doctors, nurses, um, community health workers working in their own countries and their own communities. And also, uh, also, we often have people from the global south working in other countries in the global south. I'm going to the wedding of a very dear friend tomorrow um, who's Burundian, studied at Harvard, and has been our medical director in Lesotho now for almost five years. So, uh, you know, th that's the other way to build this kind of solidarity and almost a pan-African uh, approach I say almost because we have a lot of Haitians that do that too, and they're not Africans, although they they are in in many ways. So, um, so that's you know, for me, it was really finding something I was very passionate about, and you know, finding a group, a big group of people who were passionate about the same things and fighting together. That's so incredible. What I'm hearing, it was a lot of you following what felt right for you, you following your passion, but as well as yeah. something, and as well as your discipline, right? So you mirrored your discipline with your passion and always being in yeah. the right at the right time, as well as reaching out and creating solidarity with people. I think that's how you're able to create yeah. a global network. Yeah, no, that's a great summary, yeah. Absolutely. And I'm remembering your guest lecture, and I think this relates to back, you were just saying, you said in that lecture, you said, medicine is not strictly biological, it's biosocial and biohistorical. And when I was researching this episode, I watched your speech that you gave at the first evening for equity that the Partners yeah. in Health hosted. In that speech, you said poverty, not arrogance, is the cause of ill, of Ill health. And so from yeah. your expertise as a physician, and you kind of- Not ignorance. Poverty, not ignorance. Yeah. Poverty, not ignorance. Yes, poverty, not ignorance. And- Right, poverty not ignorance is the cause of ill health. And so my question is, from your expertise as a physician and from your experience as chief medical officer at your organization, what does it mean for medicine to not be strictly biological and for poverty to be the cause of ill health? Yeah, so I mean, 
if medicine was strictly biological, then it would evenly distribute itself around the world um, in terms of ill health, right? It would be as common in my town of affluent town of Brookline, Massachusetts, as it is in a rural town of, um, you know, Koidu, uh, Sierra Leone, but it's not right? And it's not because I behave in a more healthy way. It's not because I'm smarter. It's because what we call the social determinants or what I prefer to call the social forces are stacked against good health. And so people are without access to water and sanitation, of course, you'll have diarrheal disease. Without proper ventilation in your house, tuberculosis can spread. And we know this from many, many studies, right? So in the 40s, before there was really wide access to antiretroviral therapy, or excuse, excuse me, to anti-tuberculosis therapy, the rates of tuberculosis in New York City went down. Why? Because of the GI Bill, because middle class and lower middle class people could own homes and move to the suburbs. And preventing the overcrowding and improving people's nutrition through social programs resulted in decreased prevalence of tuberculosis. It's not that people came and understood, oh, we get it, now we understand tuberculosis, and that's why it went down. It was because the social forces were in favor of people having healthier lives. And if you don't understand those social forces, and it's, you know, often it's the risk you know, if you have these social forces, malnutrition, poor housing, water and sanitation, lack of a job, lack of, you know, many of these social protections, we, we know people get sick. But we also know that even if they don't have a, a greater risk, so let's say something like breast cancer, we don't think it is the risk is around social forces, but the Delay in presentation because of social forces causes more mortality. So there have been numerous studies on the impact of racism, the impact on lack of access, the impact on black women not being taken seriously by their providers. These things result in higher mortality for women, black women in the United States with breast cancer. So those are not biologic phenomenon. Those are very deeply social phenomenon. And so what we're trying to say is the system of healthcare is a thermometer, right? It, the ill health is a thermometer for in, injustice of many sorts. And we have to both help people so they don't die prematurely, but at the same time advocate for a fairer social structure so people don't get sick in the first place or that when they get sick, they are attended to properly. So, you know, I often give the example of my son. When he was two and a half, he had a cancer called neuroblastoma. It can be fatal. Um, but because I had health insurance, um, he was caught early uh, and he needed a very extensive surgery, but he didn't even ever need chemo. In contrast, in the same line as me, right, in following up, there was a woman who was of Haitian descent and her child had some kind of cancer and she was crying to think about the impact her child's cancer would have on her ability to work because she was so afraid she would lose her job. And so 
those those are two people even with the same clinic and this is not a disease that is different biologically right this is about my network my health insurance my job security right versus hers and i don't know what the outcome of her child was but this is the fear that people live with around the world um and and then you take the the even further out example if you took a child uh, in Cameroon uh, in the capital even who had this disease it is likely they would not have survived and even if they got operated on it would be late and even if they got operated on late it would have been an open thoracic incision through their sternum whereas my kid had a little video camera remove the tumor, put it in a bag, pull it out, and he has a scar this big, and they never had to open his chest, and he was home in four days. That is the standard of care that everyone should have. There is no reason that my son should have better care than uh, the son of a woman in Cameroon. There's just no way. And we, we, in the 21st century, we should be just deeply ashamed of this acceptance of multiple tiers of an access to a basic human right. And it's happening in education, it's happening in health, it's happening in housing, food security. And I just feel like we need something better, you know? Um, and poor people believe that, <laughs> you know, it's only the people who have tons of money um, who really think, oh yeah, we can't do any better than that. But that's nonsense. Right, no, it's, it's incredible what you speak of when you talk about these like global inequities, how medicine is not biological, because if it was, as you said, you know, in my hometown of Douala, if a child gets sick, they should have the exact same care as I would have if I got sick and had to go to like somewhere downtown. And it's incredible. And from your speech at that event for the um, Evening for Equity, you mentioned that Partners in Health was one of the first players in making the AIDS movement or in making the- Yeah, um, treatment, yeah, treatment. And right, so which was a treatment, or I'm sorry, which was a movement that said that any treatment is a human, as you said. And so my question to you now is, what would our world look like if healthcare was framed as a human right? And why is it important that not only healthcare, but treatment is framed in this way? Yeah, it would look completely different. It would look completely different, you know, First of all, we know that if children survive, parents have fewer children because they understand they'll survive. A lot of the high rates of fertility are around the fear that your children are going to die, right? So fertility would go down and then families would be able to get those children educated and support them. Now, we should also make education free and accessible, quality education, not education under a tree. Oh, isn't that like so romantic? It's not romantic, it's horrible, right? So I think we would see a very different dynamic in families with you know smaller family size, focus on attainable, good educational roles and jobs, um, and, you know, fewer burdens on the family. The number one cause of impoverishment around the world is healthcare. Like, so for people falling from middle class or lower middle class, or even like some level of dignity to impoverishment is healthcare costs. So we would see from the United States, 
to, you know, uh, Liberia, we would see fewer people on the street. We would see fewer families and shelters, right? We'd see, um, and, you know, and then the other thing is we'd see fewer orphans. You know, many orphans around the world have lost parents, often a mother, um, but sometimes two parents, to diseases and conditions, including childbirth. You know, women still die at a very high rate in childbirth. And what happens to the rest of the children then? We know that they are much more likely to die. They are much more likely to be malnourished. They're much more likely to not finish school. So if we really believe that basic dignity is what we should be aiming for in the 21st century. Healthcare is a major cornerstone for that. And I remember in your guest lecture, you talked about how when you first went abroad working in global health, you the thing you were given, like the directive you were given was mostly just to, yeah, yeah like to tell women what they weren't doing. Because it was the assumption that we're, you know, ignorant of the issue versus as you we're mentioning these social determinants, right? So it's not that this mother doesn't know that she needs to feed her child like four different food groups, mainly greens, et cetera, et cetera. But it's that she has to work. And if she has to work, who's going to take care of the child. And if she's taking care of the child, who's going to like make money and et cetera. Yeah, she doesn't have enough food. Yeah, yeah. Well, I think this behavioralist notion is rooted in racism, first of all. First and foremost is rooted in racism. And secondly, it's rooted in the desire for kind of technical fixes and expertise as a fix rather than structural fixes, right? Because if you admit that malnutrition is that kids are starving, right, and not the behaviors or the ignorance of their mothers, then that implicates all of us, that's systemic, that's structural. Um, and so I think a lot of things, you know, the, the, unfortunately the ancestry of this field is pretty yucky. I mean, colonial medicine, a lot of the schools of tropical medicine were to take care of the colonists, not the local people, right? In our own country, in the United States, a lot of the experimentation from Tuskegee on was done on black people. We had there are there were things written in the medical literature about black people not having the same nerve endings. I mean, this is deeply seated in racism, and then this idea of you know it, I'm smart. You know, and this is a very, like, I think American sort of the Puritan ethic. If you work hard, God likes you better, you do better. And therefore, I have the God-given sort of uh, privilege and responsibility to teach people how they're living the wrong way. And, you know, when I see how my colleagues, my friends, um, the rural poor how they support their families. It is incredible. I couldn't do it for a day. I couldn't do it for a day. You know, and I try sometimes to have people show me how to mash cassava, for example, or how to plant rice. And I find it completely impossible. I, I you know, I would be dead, right? So the idea that I am so much smarter or so much more talented, it's like, 
yeah, I have something to contribute to a movement, but I don't have mastery of everything. And there's a lot I learn every day. So, you know, I think we've got to really shift the paradigm to say that we all have something that we have mastery over that we can contribute. I'm a student of Paulo Freire, the great Brazilian educator who really talked about this idea of bi-directional learning as liberation um, and appreciating that everybody has skills to bring to the table. Um, and it's not just one-sided expertise from the elite. Right. What I love about what you just said is that when we move from thinking that these issues are just from one person, right, to a mother being ignorant or, you know, et cetera, to mainly like a structural issue, it implicates everyone. And within that implication, we're forced to reckon with ourselves and we're forced to say, okay, well, how can we solve the problem? And you've actually authored a book, a textbook with Oxford University Press called Global Health Delivery, Practice, Equity, and Human Rights. You outline the history of the global health movement. And so my question now to you is, what can be done to further the global health movement in addressing these structural issues, right? So in order to provide vulnerable communities around the world with the staff, the stuff, the space, and the systems necessary to provide necessary high quality health care. Yeah. Well, I mean, I think we have to, I mean, I'm, I'm looking for social movements. We're working with social movements. And, you know, I think some of it's happening. The protests around the world against neoliberalism in Chile and Colombia, Iraq, Lebanon, um, France, uh, people are understanding that capitalism is not a solution to equity. It's not a solution to basic justice issues. And so I think there is a broad-based social movement. I think the people who are leading on climate change um, also are seeing that part of the issue is if it's about individual efficacy, greed, accumulation of wealth, we're not going to get there. So, you know, I think and I hope will continue that these social movements, health will be part of that. So one, we need a big social movement, and I think it should be intersectional, intersectional around rights. The second, I would say, is we have to look at cash and cash flows. There is no way to address this on the resource constraints of impoverished countries because they have been impoverished. Not They're not poor. They have been actively impoverished by tax evasion, colonialism, resource extraction. And it's very interesting that, you know, people in Congo are now suing Apple and Google. For, this is what we need to do. We need to take on cases that show that we, as elites, you're an elite, I'm elite, right? We are beneficiaries of globalization. And the losers are the poor, again. And so, if we believe that there should be a justice framework for globalization, it needs to be on a global accountability for money and money that can be distributed in a rights-based framework to everyone. And, you know, that's a big ask, but that's the only, I think, only ask, really, that's reasonable. Um, and there's movement in that direction. I mean, if you talk about people who are talking about the Robin Hood tax, which is a small tax on currency transaction, currency transaction depends on globalization. Um, 
has no real social good. And a small tax on that could go into a fund that would be distributed for things of global interest and importance like health, education, climate change, right? So that would be one strategy. We're seeing that a lot with an organization called Unit Aid, which is funded by a tiny tax on airline travel. Again, airline travel is not a good thing, right? And I, I'm guilty of it. I travel a lot. Um, but it is also a global elite thing, right? And how can we use revenues from that to redistribute toward areas of justice? And so I, you know, I and many others are talking about what is the framework for the 21st century of rights, right? In the 20th century, it was really around the nation state, right? The government needs to respect, protect, and fulfill rights. In the 21st century, I think it really has to be what is the global commitment? How do we fund it? And how do we look at these really illicit flows of cash from the global south and capture that toward redistribution of wealth? So that's what I think needs to be done. And I'm not alone. Um, it's a huge ask. But I think there are really positive signs of that. Yeah, no, it's it's definitely a big ask, but I think we live in a world where we have so many billionaires, right? We have so many instances where the phenomenal happens, right? When the impossible happens. So to ask that we tax just, you know, currency trading or to ask that we tax airline travel in the direction of helping people, right? That I don't think is a big ask, right? Right, right. And if we make it voluntary, like the Global Fund or like international aid, it's never going to be sufficient. It has to be, I think, a structural and involuntary kind of tax system that will have a revenue stream and isn't up to the whims of who is the president of the United States or who's running the EU. I mean, that, 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 can't, that can't be. We are the big consumers, um, harm causers, and there has to be some accountability for that. And then I also think we should talk about reparations in terms of money. There needs to be some reparations. The, you know, the wealthy and powerful countries have stolen wealth and people. Right. So. Right. No. And just to, just to end things off, I'm reminded of this quote, which essentially said that, you know, sometimes wealth is passed off as merit, right? So when you yeah. see who is wealthy you're like oh that person is really smart that's how they got their wealth and so therefore when we look at people that are impoverished when we look at people that are poor sick it's often the case where like oh you know bad character oh they don't work hard but you've clearly you've seen it no 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 they work very hard it's just these structural issues and so i think moving forward not only do we need to redirect cash flows back to the global south in a direction of changing structural issues but also change the cultural understanding that wealth does not equal merit. Amen. Amen. Look at our current president. <laughs> if we go forward with that, we are essentially justifying people dying because they're not wealthy, because they don't contribute to the system. So thank you so much for this discussion. All right. You're welcome.